Thank you for listening to the Ubuntu podcast. All thoughts and opinions shared in this platform truly belong to the hosts and the hosts alone. In this episode, our conversation takes us across many different organizations and out of respect for their privacy and anonymity, some of the words in this podcast might be blurred to protect their identity. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu podcast. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Ubuntu podcast. (laughs) We are on episode six, and it is none other than the illustrious David Curtis with you all. And I want to introduce my other two co-hosts. Who else we got on the line? Hey, what's good, y'all? This is Dow. Welcome. Welcome. Hey, guys, this is Hanok. Excited to be here. Um, Yeah, glad to be here. Yes, yes. We are so excited that you all continue for some amazing, strange reason to listen to us. (laughs) And so for those who have been rocking with us since day one, welcome back. For our new listeners, welcome on. Buckle in. You're in for a ride. (laughs) And um, we have been having such a great time in the month of April, despite the weird and very tragic circumstance that the world has experienced with COVID-19. We have been on our podcast having the necessary discussions to make sure that our listeners are connected to what's happening in the diaspora and that we're doing that important work of being about building the bridge and being the bridge that our communities need, especially in a time of crisis. And so we are sending our love. We're sending our support. We're sending our prayers and thoughts to everyone who's been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, yeah, we're just standing with you in solidarity in this moment. Um, And another important thing that we're doing on this podcast Specifically today, very excited to introduce that for our listeners, you have not only three co-hosts today, but you actually have four. We have a guest co-host, and I want her to go ahead and introduce herself. Take it away. What you got to say to the people, Mariam? Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here at the Ubuntu podcast. Um, My name is Mariam Salem, and... A little bit about my background, specifically on the topic today, um, is that I worked in global development and did a lot of identity work, and that was part of my studies at American University. And so I'm interested particularly in how much development work constitutes economic and political growth um, and lack thereof around the world. So thank you for having me. So verbose, so verbose. We're thankful to have you on here. Isn't she amazing, y'all? She's amazing. We're, we are definitely we're more than super excited to have her on here. here. And now you, you're yes. going to rock it. You're going to rock it. She's going to rock it. And yeah, she gave us a sneak um, for our listeners. She gave us a sneak peek of our episode topic. We are talking about development. We're talking about international development as a discipline, as a sector. And in Ubuntu fashion, we're going to problematize it. We're going to apply a new lens. We're going to really build out what we think development needs to do to center the experiences and the trajectory of our communities in and around the diaspora. And you are actually, as listeners, in for a, this is part one of going to be a two-part episode for you all because we got so much to discuss. But before we get into that big conversation, right? Uh, we just want to thank Marion for being here. She's a friend of ours, as she mentioned, from American University. 
um, just another brilliant sister that we all got an opportunity to connect with. And so before we let her take the reins and really just, you know, teach us in an amazing way and have that great conversation, we are going to do none other than our Africa in the News segment. And who better to kick it off for this episode's Africa in the News than Dow Dodo. So go ahead, Didi, take it over. It's all you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, that, was a, that was a beautiful introduction. Africa in the news. Thank you for still rocking with us our, to our listeners and our new listeners. Uh, for this Africa in the news, I want to talk about, you know, anti-blackness in the global community. Uh, but this particular topic, I want to focus on China-Africa relation. China, over the last two decades or so, built a relationship with Africa that's somewhat uh, focused on economics only, where the Chinese and Africans uh, seem to be benefiting off of this economic relationship. China is Africa's biggest trade partner, trading partner. Uh, the value of China-Africa trade, for example, in, 2015, in 2014, hit its peak, was at the height of $215 billion uh, annually. The value of Africa-China uh, trade started to go down just because of the econo- economic downturn. Uh, the last couple of years. In 2017, it was $148 billion. Uh, and then in the first half last year of 2019, total uh, import and export volume with Africa was at $102 billion. That was in the first half of 20, 2019. So we see how important Africa is to China or how China is important to Africa in terms of the economic economic benefits that's going on there. I mean, now we can argue, is this a, is this a mutual, uh, respectable relationships or dynamics, the power dynamics that are on play here? That's a topic for another day. But what I'm trying to look at here, uh, even with this relationship that has been forming and been, uh, you would say, flourishing for the last two decades or so, we still see anti-blackness uh, in China. Uh, even though Africa is its biggest trading partner. So I want to take a look in terms of how could Africa be of importance to China, but yet African people are not of importance to China and in the, in the domestic politics. And so this, this, past, this past week or so, since COVID-19 has been slowing down in China, uh, we have been seeing, uh, we would say, strange, inhumane images coming out of China that is showing African people being kicked out of their apartments, being laid off of their jobs. Uh, Africans are being accused of bringing COVID-19 to China. Now, we know when this COVID-19 started it, China was the first country, really, to to go on a lockdown, a full lockdown uh, in the world. And so... How could it be that Africans are being sabotaged and being the scapegoat at this moment that COVID-19 is slowing down in China when China was the first country to take such actions against COVID-19? So I just want to go uh, go over a couple of topics, uh, the reactions that that African Union and African countries had to these images that were coming out of China. And uh, it's just rightfully so. I think that this is definitely a strange time. I've I, I, never seen African countries or governments or institutions react this way before. Uh, for me, it's new. The African Union came out with a statement condemning uh, the mistreatment and the racist attacks against African people in China and said this goes against uh, the mutual relationship that China has built with Africa over the last couple of decades or so. Ghana took it further. And Ghana took actions by summoning uh, the Chinese ambassador to Ghana and recalling its, its ambassador and said Ghana will not stand in, in the face of such uh, inhumane attacks against Africans in China. 
and it goes against the, re- the relationship that uh, and the understanding of the relationship that were there between China and African countries. And so Ghana said, until China takes fur- further actions, it will not send its ambassador back to China. And so what does this say about China-Africa relations? On one hand, foreign policy-wise, we see China act differently in Africa. Now China has been sending aid, testing kits uh, to Africa to fight COVID-19. But on another hand, in the domestic policy side of things, Chinese institutions have not come out whatsoever and condemned these racist attacks and mistreatments against African people. Whatsoever, not even the Chinese National Congress Party has come out and condemned these attacks. The only institution in China that has come out is McDonald's saying that they're sorry that they were kicking people outside, out of their restaurants when these people, for say, they don't live in McDonald's restaurant. You know, they had homes and apartments and jobs in which they were kicked out of. So China with this kind of like two-sided, you know, relationship or semi-relationship with Africa, with Africa and African people. What does the future look like uh, for China and Africa uh, when when, when China knows it needs Africa in terms of if, in terms of if it continue to go on this economic, you know, economic growth, trying to become a superpower that the United States is and needs Africa. And then on the other hand, Africa needs China for its raw materials that it is sending to the continent, uh, whether it's building infrastructure and other materials that are there uh, that Chinese companies produce. And so China has kind of took a hit. Uh, in Africa, China, it, 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 it's, it, it's viewed favorably all over the continent, but none other is it's viewed more favorably uh, in Africa. But no other country view China more favorably than Nigeria itself. Nigerians view China over 80 percent as a positive factor in, in the country and on the continent. But the Nigerian uh, government came out, the Nigerian foreign, foreign ministry came out and condemned these attacks and say that if China does not uh, take such actions, uh, it, it definitely takes a hit. Its image takes a hit in the country and across the continent. And so anti-blackness, we know is a global phenomenon. And we know that even when countries are trading or have relationships with Africa, it does not necessarily solve anti-blackness. But we know that as we continue to march on onward toward the future and Africa continue to build, the way it will react to anti-blackness uh, phenomenon across the continent is important. And it's of importance that economics is important, but so are human rights and our human rights as African people across the globe. And so one thing, my reaction personally, I was I was happy that African institutions, African governments came out and released these statements uh, because they rarely have done that in the past. And so it means that African people are gaining more. I think self-awareness, self-reflection, and know that their dignity is not something that you can just trade for uh, in economic uh, materials. And so that is Africa in the news. Great job. That was awesome, Dow. Very informative. Um, Yeah, super good and very troubling what's happening. But I completely agree with your takeaway and your conclusion. No, thank you. Thank you. You know, I think we'll be watching closely to see, you know, uh, the actions that China will will be taking against these uh, xenophobic uh, racist attacks against Africans. And what what will China learn from this? Uh, Because it's just this is not a way to treat, you know, an important partners, which you know that you need. And to see the actions that African countries will be taking against China uh, in the near future if these attacks continue to happen. 
Yeah, and if I may add, I think it'll be interesting to see um, once African nations take a more staunch stance against China's uh, internal domestic politics towards minority groups um, and particularly African groups, if this will have any effect on their internment camps towards um, the Chinese Uyghurs that are in the nation and currently in prison. So um, it'll be, yeah. Definitely looking forward to seeing what will happen. So. Yeah, and and that's like you said, that's something African countries rarely take. They never take actions against countries and their domestic policies, or domestic politics. That's so key. Actually, Miriam, if you can, can you take a couple of seconds to just elaborate on what you just mentioned? Because I think, unfortunately, too little people know about that um, humanitarian crisis that's taking place in China, and it also just points to an important amount of precedence around what could happen to African folks if they don't remain vigilant. Yeah, so the Uyghurs in China, they, um, they're they a long-standing ethnic group. In fact, they, technically the territory that they're in um, was theirs for centuries before what we know as the current Chinese um the current country that is China, um, and yet the China, and they're also a majority Muslim. And as you know, like the current Communist Party in China is particularly like anti-religion, um, but specifically also religions that aren't necessarily like what they consider indigenous to China, even though the Uyghurs are indigenous to the region that they're in, China, and so they're being put into internment camps. Um, that are completely hard to get into as journalists trying to figure out what's going on. There are reports that people are being tortured. Um, people are forced to engage in acts that are against their faiths as a way of demonizing them um, and their faith practices. Uh, China, I think recently, I'm not sure if it's in all regions or particularly regions where there's a lot of Muslims, but they believe that they... Um, Wrote, or they believe that Islam is as like the government believes that Islam is a mental illness, which is fascinating because China also also partners with a lot of Muslim countries and Muslim majority countries. So it just it goes to show the difference between their domestic politics versus their international politics, where they're willing to grow their country um, in a state of being able to work with other countries. And yet internally, there are mass human rights violations um, that continue to grow. Uh, there's reports that the Uyghurs, their, their, their organs are being used to treat patients, um, like Chinese patients in hospitals and stuff. And just like the f- amount of harvesting that's going on. Um, and, there's, there's, and this has been going on for a couple of years now as well. And so part of the international community's lack of response comes from because China is so economically tied to their own economies. And so it comes, it begs to differ. Like right now we're seeing what a lot of people are calling like the second Holocaust. Um, and yet the world is silent because there's money involved in that. Um, and to go after China is to go also to go after the economy in many ways. And, and is that, and I think, you know, that there's a moral question, like we, we should put human rights before we put over the economic benefits that we're seeing maybe from a trading partner. But also, I think when we talk about the economy, not everyone's benefiting from trade from, with China, right? Like farmer, local farmers um, and businesses are suffering from outsourcing, manufacturing, and I mean, there's just a lot of questions that go into that. But one thing's for sure is that we can't sit by while a group of people, whether it's Africans or Uyghurs, are being tortured. 
uh, in a country that is one of the fastest growing countries in the world. Excellent point. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for elaborating on that. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for elaborating. And thank you, Dow, for that Africa in the news segment. If I could be provocative, shouldn't we do this study in Africa where there are no mass treatment or intensive care, a little bit like we did in certain aid studies or with prostitutes? You are right. We're currently thinking in parallel about a study in Africa to implement the same type of approach with the BCG vaccine against tuberculosis. There's a delicate process that has gone out or will go out. We will seriously think about that. Now, that was a conversation held by Dr. Jean-Paul Mira, head of the intensive care unit at the Cochin Hospital in Paris, in a discussion on COVID-19 with Dr. Camille Locht, who is the research director at the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research. Now, these comments went viral and drew widespread condemnation, in particular from the very head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros Adhanom. He explained how, at a time when solidarity is needed, these racist comments go against our message of bringing unity and fighting this virus. Dr. Adhanom also made the remark that actually helps put our conversation today into perspective. He explains how Africa cannot and will not be a testing ground for any vaccine. Now, Dow, a lot of your segment focused on this concept of anti-blackness and racism that members of the African diaspora are facing across the world today. And Dr. Adhanom's reference to Africa as a testing ground is actually a really important point. In many ways, it alludes to Africa's history experiencing colonialism. European nations, in particular France, are infamous for their history of colonialism across the continent and the oppression that it brought to its people. And so many of the challenges that are faced on the continent today, whether political, social, or economic, are often traced back to the residue of colonialism. So when we talk about international development, this is a really important aspect to consider. And there's also a power dynamic that needs to, that we're seeing play out here. So how does this impact our perception of Africa and the modern day work that we see in the international development space? I actually want to kick it off to David to give us a larger framework of international development. Yeah, that that's so good, Hanok. I think that story really captures what is one of the contemporary issues and critiques of what we talk about in development. And so I think that's an important way to start the conversation because development to many people might be this like really abstract term or might be a term that people are not familiar with at all. And when we're talking about international development, but to simply put it, international development, development is a process in which communities advance, evolve, adapt, and accumulate more resources and um, opportunities to improve quality of life as time moves forward. And so there are entire sectors that have been created around development or what is international development and where there's a consensus that folks in different countries, because of forces like globalization and as well, colonialism, imperialism, have a say and have a vested interest in um, the development and the, the forward moving process of other countries and other nations. Countries who use tactics, whether they be brute force, war, lying, exploitation, stealing, or other forces that are more soft, like culture and messaging to be able to extract and to be able to influence the fate of other um, countries' developments because it's tied to their own. Um, and so development in many ways is less about, you know, these um, kind of like conceptual theories and the ways that many academics and people who work in what you would call development like to make it about. It's really about 
the way that power resources, the way that influence is mitigated and controlled and um, exchanged throughout the world. And when it comes in turn, when, when we talk about it in terms of African people and African communities, it means so much more because it is literally talking about the fate of where our countries and our communities are going in contrast to the negative history that we have experienced for others who have invaded and infiltrated what has been our nations and our communities' development. And so I think as we go into our questions and as we really get into the nitty gritty of this conversation, we have to think about what development has done in terms of pop culture in terms of the discourse around what we think about the continent and we, we think about the continent's development. And I think we can't talk about that until we properly address what is, you know, that day-to-day humanitarian, uh, the state of humanitarianism on Africa and how do people around the diaspora who belong to Africa, um, belong to the diaspora or who don't, how do they see Africa? How do they see the continent through the lens of that humanitarian discourse and through the lens of aid and the lens of charity? And not just those concepts or those feelings, but really what what those things are, which are industries that are based on profit, that are based on, you know, um, money. (laughs) And the fact that, our understanding, if we're all really honest and think about it and, you know, are willing to deconstruct it, both our 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 co-hosts, as we will do in a matter of minutes, but also our listeners, our understanding of Africa and African communities specifically are 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 are, are created through these constructs of need, of suffering, of suffering, of desperation. And um, those are not. Uh, unintentional. Those are very specific ways in which these industries and aid and development has um, leaned itself to the gaze of those who oppress. Yeah, thank you, David. This first question that I want to pose to you guys is, how do you guys define development and how are you introduced to development work? And why does every person, especially every Black and African person, need to understand and involve themselves in this sector? What do you guys think? Yeah, I can go and um, start with answering that question. Thank you for asking. Uh, So my initial interest in international development came initially from my lack of connection um, and direction with my own origins. I felt that it was my duty, especially when thinking about things that I wanted to do post high school, um, to work with people and people that backgrounds that I share. And also within the politics and economic issues that I was passionate about that didn't just involve domestic politics. I think the first thing that um, that was told to us as like international study students at the School of International Service at AU um, was that domestic politics is international politics and international politics is domestic politics. And that was always something that I kind of felt growing up just because my life was in two worlds, right? Like I was learning about what was happening here in the United States, but also Everything that happened abroad also affected my family in one in one way or another. Um, and although you know, as well meaning and as well intentional the international development field may sound, um, there is definitely a power dynamic to it that has the opposite effect and can have lasting negative impact on communities that development organizations go to work with. Uh, and so, I think it's important that we as diasporas are involved in international development, not just within the continent, but around the world, because 
international development historically has been a field that has disenfranchised groups and continues to do so. And we're going to go into that and I can't wait, but I'm excited to hear what everyone else has to say about this question. No, thank you for that answer, Miriam. Uh, For me, how do I? I think development, I didn't know what development was for me uh, personally until I until I lived in the refugee camp. I think that was the first time in my in my lifetime I saw how development was at work. Uh, th- that's the first time I saw development at work, my introduction uh, being in the refugee camp uh, in terms of building homes for the for the refugees, uh, building, uh, I would say, sewage system, infrastructures, uh, schools. That was the first time I saw development at work. Uh, as a kid. Uh, and so it was just, I didn't really know what development was growing up in Sudan until I came to Kenya. Now development was just being introduced to me from multidimensional uh, perspectives, especially being an African person. For me, it's just like, it, it made me think, it's just like, it was, it was something out of this world because it was just like, oh, it was like, oh, it was just like these these were something new, new concepts that were being introduced to me that weren't there when I was two, three years old when I was in Sudan compared to being in Kenya and my childhood being all in Kenya until I was about 10 years old. And so seeing development work in the process of development. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that response from both of you. Um, similar to... Not as similar to Dow's, but similar to Miriam's. I also became really interested in development um, from the place of wanting to know more and understand more about my origins and um, kind of was catapulted into the world of development and just learning about it for the first time as a teenager in a very kind of like. <laughs> typical Western kid way. Um, I got a scholarship, as many of you know, from my church to go to Uganda. And so um, the very like standard volunteer abroad experience, two weeks. And um, the experience was so weird for me because it was so nuanced, like weird in the most amazing way. Weird as in like, I knew that there was a, a certain experience that was expected that I have um, because of the way the volunteer industry works and um, there's all these assumptions associated with who you're serving and this the power dynamics that are already like embedded and like I re- even just remember in my trainings and what I was learning about um, Uganda, Ugandan people and what I was being told what I was being conditioned to expect around poverty, around culture shock, around all these things and feeling like I was having two alternative experiences one that was like watching what I should be experiencing and thinking and then one which was wanting to know more about the system in which I was even participating on the trip and so yes I did have an incredible experience it taught me a lot about it taught me a lot about what I needed to learn really and I think that is the experience that the industry the volunteerism industry doesn't want people to have. They want people to have these kind of cathartic, you know, um, very singular, one-dimensional experiences. And I felt like I was in resistance to that the whole ex- the whole time I was there. And it just had me question more like why I was there and what I was doing while still having a meaningful experience learning about a new place and feeling extremely connected in a way that I also for the industry doesn't really create for folks because I was a member of the diaspora, though I am not Ugandan. I don't believe I am. Um, I am still a, I'm still connected than, you know, say a white person. And so I just was really intrigued by 
why I was there and what I was doing and motivated to to do something different, but still connected to helping and advancing what is the continent of Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. And so that was my introduction. Now, as you all know, uh, I run an NGO in Uganda working with youth, students and leaders and families. And so um, it was a it was a crash course at 16. But yeah, that's my introduction. So I hope that answers the question pretty well. And um, I'll answer the second part about what I think people need to know later on in the episode. Similarly for me, I think there are definitely similarities to what the three of you have already shared. For me, it was definitely a way of kind of getting a better understanding of my own origins as well. So around 15, I was for- informally, excuse me, informally introduced to development by taking my first trip to Ethiopia. So that was my first trip that I left the country and being able to just see a different country, a different society, and just understanding the culture led me to kind of think more about these questions as to, you know, why is there, you know, what led to the issues of poverty? What led to the political, economic issues that are in the country today? And when I went to school, I did an international relations uh, major, but then I wanted to focus again on like how can we work in this sector to help people and to to find actual ways to deal with the systems that um, cause these issues? So for me, it was likewise like just being able to to go to an African country for the first time and seeing it kind of face to face. Miriam, can you actually tell us a bit more about your personal experience in development, both as a civil servant and a creative artist? And then being a woman, Muslim, Black, all these intersections make for interesting and dynamic perspectives. What is it like being a woman in development that is coming from an American-centric upbringing and what are central problems folks are not seeing? Yeah, so I think, um, so a lot of my experiences in development, like there's one part of me and which is similar to you, Hanak, like informally going to Ethiopia and just being, you know, familiar with like African countries in that aspect. And then there's like the work that I've done as an adult um, when I was in Turkey. And one thing that I noticed in both, both countries is that my, like, First of all, I'm not a very like threatening looking person. I'm like 4'11". So by far, I look like a grown child for many people. Um, but I think that in comparison to my peers, I'm much more well received, even when I was in Turkey, um, especially among women populations of refugees that I was working with and introduced to. And I think part of that is like, yes, a lot of the refugees in Turkey are Muslim, but they're also Syrians and Arabs. And then there was also the Turks that enjoyed being around me or you would see them more like, for instance, like we would be going to a new NGO just to see the work that they're doing. Um, and even though there was another like Muslim girl on the trip um, and she's she's she she's white as well or not not as well I'm not white but the point being that like when the the women there the Turkish women there they would come up to me and do a traditional like greet with me um versus even though they saw that there was like another Muslim girl there they they noticed that well she's Muslim but she's also you know American in the sense of her being like European descendant whatnot and they would treat her much more Americanized than they would treat me um even though I'm ethnically different from them um and religiously similar but also I'm religiously similar to the the white girl on my trip as well and part of that I think is that you know traditionally what we see in development is white Americans um, or white Europeans and so for me to be in the development space there's a different 
even though people may all be well-meaning, I come with a different presence of intent, um, which is like, I'm obviously here to, to be connected and to help and to work with you guys uh, in a way that's authentic. And I think also when having conversations with these people on the things that they're going through, something that I saw, noticed that what my peers would do is that they would sit in their own sadness, right? Like they would hear a traumatic story um, from a refugee or from a social worker and uh, like the social worker or the refugee would kind of be like telling the story like it's easy and just passing it on and being like yeah this is what happened to me um and like my peers would be so visibly upset you could see that they've really internalized that trauma despite the person telling that trauma being very um you know, having gone through what processing and will continue to process, but they didn't sit in their sadness. Um, and so what I would do a lot is, I mean, I experienced that a lot with my own family, right? When something bad happens and people kind of like laugh through their sadness, um, I would, I would join with them because obviously at that point, they're not looking for a researcher or a, um, authority figures response they're looking for a human response and they're looking for a human connection and so um i think that uh, being like a black muslim woman that really um that really helped with me being able to be in these spaces um in a way that if i had not had the experiences that i've had or just the identity that i share i would be holding a different power dynamic and i think also to answer the second part of your question uh, about problems that folks aren't seeing in development uh, I think a central issue that people forget, especially uh, Westerners going to development, is that there is a power dynamic um, when looking at international development. And a lot of that is historical and there's political gains that come with that. And one of my favorite theories that I learned in um, undergrad was global dependency theory, um, because I felt like it explained a lot of the political economic relationships of nations um, and the development patterns that we're seeing today. Uh, and the theory goes, is that there are core nations, also known as like nations that have histories of being imperialist and colonialist states, are benefiting from satellite nations, also known as periphery nations, who used to be colonies, and that's still the economic relationship um, that we still that we see today. That even though it may not be a governing relationship, for instance, France may not have political says um, in what happens in their previous colonies anymore there's still that continued produced economic power dynamic that we saw in colonialism um, being reproduced today. And so, um, yeah. Have you guys encountered this theory before? Do you think that it explains a lot of what you're seeing today? Yeah, actually, I th this is so great that you mentioned it. And I think it helps to explain why even after so much aid, charity and humanitarianism work that's been provided to what would be called the satellite nations, which were former colonies, um, there's still such an expectation for everyone involved around particularly like Africa's dependency on these richer nations or these core nations, you know, even after these billions and billions of dollars have been invested to quote unquote develop these nations, uh, you know, many of them in Africa. And so I guess my question back to you, Miriam, is can you provide examples of how global dependency theory plays out in terms of charity? Yeah, thank you, David. Um, so one example, there's like two others that I can think of that uh, I feel like are larger concepts that people should take into consideration. Um, but the one that I would like to talk about is 
um, how unsustainable NGO programs are in international development. If a U.S. organization is solely basing the ability to do their work um, through grants and federal funding, then they are at the whims of the grant boards and federal laws of the U.S. Um, therefore, a project that is funded for three years can shut down immediately without considering the cost that this has on the local populations that they're working with. And David, I know that you um, are head of an NGO and Dow, your experiences with NGO personally. Um, how has this, do you, have you seen this happening? Um, what's your experience with these things? Uh, th thank you for mentioning uh, NGO programs and how they work internationally, uh, Miriam. Uh, for me, like you said, it's just like how they work internationally and it's usually in the refugee camp or developing country. Uh, me growing up in a refugee camp, I saw, you know, international organizations that NGOs from the U.S., European nations come in. But how they kind of, like you said, they depend on grants and federal fundings. But that's that changes depending on each administration's right or it, what political power comes, what what party comes to power uh, in that country. And so, for example, it's just like education. So when I was in the refugee camp, USAID was in charge of uh, building schools, right, in the refugee camp. So it had taken charge of that. But when it was building school, it completed half of the school, but completely didn't finish it. And it would, this was a like you said, you know, these programs are sometime from a year to two years, three years, even five years. So when it, it, it built the school, I didn't completely finish it. And so when I was going to school, my classrooms were large. They were classrooms of 60 students per class. Think about that. Just because the school was not completed, uh, we didn't have desks. And so we were sitting on the floor uh, of our classrooms. And you, you know how classrooms are in Africa. So we were just literally sitting on a what you would call, you know, dirt uh, to learn. And so we didn't have pencils or materials to, quote unquote, to go to school accurately. And so the only way we would learn, we were learning was using the chalkboard that we had. It was just the teacher, you know, how they pick on you and then come and, you know, do what you needed to do to answer that question. Uh, but that's just in a way how unsustainable these programs were. And another program that they had was they had a program to uh, educate in a way, teach ESL to mothers and and women literacy and it's just this literacy it just had happened for a year but after a year the program cut out because they didn't have enough funding out and so my mom was went to school for a whole year and then she never went to school ever again until she came to the u.s here to take esl classes and so now imagine if she had completed the esl courses in the refugee camp you know her English would have been much better coming to the States than when she came to the States, uh, not, you know, having completely forgot everything that she was taught in that year span because the, the program completely just stopped because it didn't have funding. And so these are the, in a way, NGO functions, they rely on government, uh, government funding uh, and government funding is just is not something that's sustainable because it's just it's something that changes depending on which organization, which administration is in power. Yeah, that is that is so good. I if I can interject, uh, I've definitely seen this as well. And I'm, I have to be careful about what I'm going to say next, depending on who would hear this. But 
both from my experience with Building Hope Project, which is the organization I run, seeing things through that lens, but also my 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 experience when I first went to Uganda um, as a group of missionaries with a group of missionaries who I love, respect, you know, all black missionaries, which is also a very interesting experience. But one of the things that they um, that we were working on, it was um, we were like we were apparently molding bricks to actually like build a church like build a church and um i just there were so many under, there was so that was one of the areas i was really confused about because i wondered where was the funding coming from this and um we were apparently building out different portions of the of the walls for these churches and um i had learned soon after that it was like the church had been in construction for almost six years that literally the manpower behind this construction was the, the the two weeks of missionaries that would come once a year and that actually the um, the manpower that was but then they would expect like folks who were like a part of the church and folks connected to the community to like come out and um essentially like assist us and lead this but they weren't being given the resources year-round from the organization that was funding our trip to actually just go ahead and like hire folks who were lived in the community you know for like long term to actually just build it like they were more interested in having something for our team to do and was actually like really um obstructing a community by incrementally building out a building that served no purpose and that year round like at different parts of time when there were storms and it was like actually like creating us a, 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 a like a a, a a drain on human resources because they were trying to maintain what was a completely un like a poor foundational building because it wasn't being built it was being erected as a way to show missionaries like this is the hard backbreaking work of living in Uganda and so I thought that was a really interesting story that I can interject uh specifically around what you guys are saying Yeah, and I'm wondering, David, as a, I mean, I don't know what your title is for Building Hope, if it's CEO, director, <laughs> supreme ruler, ew, um, ew. but basically I, I'm curious about, <laughs> I'm curious about, like for you when it comes to funding and programming, um, you know, how much, like how much is relying on the sustainability of your funders versus your donors versus and how does that impact like the amount of students um you can help or even if you can help students uh within a certain school year that is such a great question um and i think to answer that it's a great way to to contextualize that is i have experienced such strain and such resistance to being able actually to do what I believe is in the best interest of the community members as articulated by the community members because of the way that nonprofits and the funding schemes are structured. And so I didn't realize that until I was head into it and was like, this system feels very counterintuitive. <laughs> um, for Building Hope Project specifically, we are 100% individual donor based and there's an actually interesting there's an interesting reason why um the reason that so right now we don't have public contracts with um the US and a lot of interestingly enough there's a whole reason how USA distributes money and like 
parameters and things like that. We also are not currently funded by private foundations. Uh, and that's not like, um, that's not necessarily intentional. It's not like a political decision, but that's problematic because I know a lot of these foundations are. Um, their money, unfortunately, is more sustainable than a lot of our individual donors, right? Um, because you, you know, uh, it's just a lot less as far as labor intensive, you know, trying to accumulate one larger funder um, than, you know, contacting what we're doing essentially on a grassroots level to get individual contributions. But the downside of needing funders is that, as you said, Miriam, you're at their whim. And so even as it stands, um, Building Hope is looking to, recruit and build funding relationships with foundations but i was even doing research in the past couple of weeks just prospecting the stipulations one of the stipulations are problematic around what you need to do and what you need to have and like what is or isn't allowed by many of these funders you know they want you to fund things that are very um direct service based and even though building whole project is direct service based there is a core piece that we want to build out as far as systems change efforts and movement building that many funders are not going to fund. They want to see things at scale because they want to project to they want to project themselves a part of a narrative that like, oh, we fed this amount of people and we clothed this amount of people. And so they want prop they want they want to work with organizations who look at problems very one like um singular and like one dimensionally. And so that is an obvious like problematic stipulation. But I think I think the other thing that is showing especially in this current climate all funders are like not necessarily they're not shutting their doors but they're like we have to change everything because covid and so like they're at the whim of like crises and they also are like we're not accepting new applications we're not we're not even like doing prospecting or i also work for a nonprofit who's currently there and they're they're a very established nonprofit they have a large budget and they are um the funding landscape for us is changing and being challenged because funders who already have relationships with us, some for decades, are now shifting gears and, you know, using terms like reprioritizing and um, that are essentially just saying, like, we know where the power is being held and um, we'll do what we can. But ultimately, like the decision and the fate of your funding is like on us and not on you and not on the and not with the community. And it even makes me as a as a leader thinking about how to continue to fund my organization and, and wanting to fund more folks, wanting to have more students a part of the program, wanting to build out more things for the community at large. Um, we've been doing that like through grassroots and any aims and progressions have been through building out our, our individual donor base. But it's incredibly it's difficult because if you also want to have people most connected to the issues, folks of color involved, you're also dealing with the economic realities of your donors not being able to always give. And so it's a catch 22. And, um, but I think tied into all of that is just like the unsustainable way that nonprofits can, can, um, can get their funding unless you build out some kind of profit bearing arm, which then comes with another host of questions you got to consider around the ethics of that. (laughs) So yeah, I hope that answered your question and kind of shed some light on what you were looking for. I'd say for me, my first experience in development was actually going firsthand, being able to go to Nairobi, Kenya as part of our school's study abroad program. 
So it was back in 2016 and I went to Nairobi with a group of other students from our school. And that experience was actually how I got a better understanding of what development looks like, you know, firsthand. And from that semester, I was able to take classes that actually went into the history of Kenya, for example. And then I took a class that talked about inclusive development. So I think those two hand in hand actually really helped give me a better perspective and they gave me context as to, you know, the development situation in Kenya, the history behind it, whether it's the political history, the social history, and then actually getting to intern at a local organization there was for me really just what got me interested in really going firsthand into development work later on. I was able to intern at like a local NGO um, called Umande Trust, where they did work around sanitation access in a settlement in Nairobi called Kibera. And so just being able to see just how the organization interacted with the local community and the importance of having a, an organization that's locally based that focused on local solutions, just seeing that the impact that it had um, in comparison to an organization that might be larger, that might um, be a little, a bit more uh, removed and just seeing the difference when it comes to implementation, uh, when it comes to just the overall um, understanding of who you're working with, I'd say was um, just in a really important experience for me. And it reminded me of how, you know, a lot of these organizations, as you guys said, the sustainability isn't there because they're a bit far removed. So if you're if you're an organization and you're not necessarily engaged with the local community, if you're not communicating with them, if you're not getting uh, an understanding of their needs and if you're not getting their active feedback, then it can get difficult for sure to really have the sustainable, long lasting effect. Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing about like the the geographically removed, right? Like if you're an organization, even if you have partner orgs that you're working with on the ground, if your physical uh, like space of power is in the United States or somewhere outside of the country that you're working in, you're also influenced by the politics of the country that you're stationed in as well, right? So for example, PEPFAR was created um, by the Bush administration in 2003 to combat AIDS and HIV transmissions globally. Uh, but because they were funded by the Bush administration, there were certain things that they could teach the populations that they were working with. Um, and for instance, let so even if the populations they were working with didn't have um, a negative connotation towards sex health education um, or emergency contraceptions because the United States at that time um, was leaning towards the right in terms of conservative politics when it comes to sex ed those things were politicized and the things that PEPFAR could teach to the populations that they were working with um, and something else that I feel, find is a problem that people should consider with NGOs is also, again, being geographically removed, they're not necessarily bound by the laws that they're in the countries that they're working with. Like there's some laws that they have to abide to to be an NGO working there. But for instance, when I was in Turkey in 2018, I remember visiting an NGO site where they taught refugees how to become entrepreneurs and create dishes and, you know, start their own restaurants if they wanted to. Um, however, after visiting that site, one of the women visited uh, or one of the refugees that we were talking to came up to me and one of my um, peers privately saying that you know even though we went through all these things um, and they said that we graduated and all of that they never really got a legal working permit to be able to open up their own restaurants um, or even 
like if they had a certification from the program, that certification didn't really met, like it didn't mean anything when they went on to try to do something legally within Turkey to create their own spaces. Um, and so even though they learned such great skills, and I'm not doubting that they were able to learn a lot from those programs, um, how much does that mean if it's not transferred over to the countries that, that they're residing in, right? And that's not just with entrepreneurship NGO programs, but even with education, students may graduate from an NGO um, or an organized school, but are the skills they acquired um, transferable and accredited within the laws of the country that they reside in? Um, and if not legally, then it's as if they haven't learned anything, right? Or that's not being, that can't be transferred over to maybe their higher institution programs at that country or space. Um, so, but that also, David, I don't want to like point you out as our resident supreme leader of an NGO, but you know, what, what was the accreditation process like for the NGO that you're working with? And is that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, just like being able for those, the kids that go through your learning program to then be able to transfer that to their, to their public school or even, um, private slash government registered accredited institution. I, I think I am understanding your question in like two parts and I guess I'll just answer both because I'm not sure what you're referring to versus like the- honestly it's just one part can your kids go to regular <laughs> higher education after going through your program no I'm joking oh Okay, well, no, well, in that in that case, definitely. So I think what be what Building Hope is, we're a student sponsorship program that's already been set up and situated. How it began, I'll say, at an accredited um, school um, in the city of Jinja in Uganda, and so what we have done, what a lot of NGOs do, and even a lot of people have told me to do, they're like, just start a school, and I'm like. I would love to be involved in doing something like that. But I also recognize at 16 years old that that probably wasn't appropriate because there were so many issues concerning sustainability and um, recruitment and accreditation that I just did not have the bandwidth and the understanding around. And so, like, we've made it very intentional, like we're not going to. Even, even how we're accredited as an organization, because a lot of folks were also, um, oh, you don't need your own 501c3 status. Just, you know, s- start raising money and send it. And I was also just very concerned about that as well. Um, but I think that show, that speaks to the narrative of like how people um, don't, how people de- one delegitimize <laughs> like what is it's like what is the futures and the and, and the stakes of many people <laughs> like just you know because I the fact that people would even suggest to disregard like legalities um shows that like there's just this casual nature that we take with like people's core services and their ability to advance and so as an organization we are accredited um we were fiscally sponsored by another organization until we could acquire our own um accreditation status and like can uh, on both sides like here in uganda and so um that's important the kids from our program they can go and do whatever because i have seen a lot of programs also not to make my answer too long but that are also even located at the school and other schools um in the city that we're in that are non-accredited and that are dodging the law and doing very weird things and jeopardizing the lives of so many who rely on what they are providing um so yeah it's dangerous and it's it's bad and i think the example you gave really connects to my experience 
Thank you, David. I, I didn't mean to like call you out. Like, yo, <laughs> so I heard you're teaching kids, but are you really teaching kids? No, oh, listen, no. listen. If if we found out in a heartbeat that there was something fishy about the school, we we would pull them, pull them, or pull the program. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also danger because imagine what if we had to do that, and then we have kids who are now stranded, you know, with an, for like not having an education. So though you're kidding, like I think that that shows a real point. Like it's just it's really unsustainable. Um, if you're not critical and don't apply that lens um, the way that most organizations don't. Wow. Uh, that was an incredible discussion, y'all. Uh, thank you so much for those, uh, for that information, the knowledge. And so for this part one episode, that is it. But stay tuned for part two. We got a lot more coming your way. Yes, we certainly do. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Miriam. You are awesome. Yeah, thank you guys for a great part one of this episode. Look forward to our second part coming soon. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. You can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma, H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A. Hey, y'all. It's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Doldol. Hey, everyone. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David, J-A-Y, Curtis with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.